0: We are, there should be a picky about to appear, in a series that started last week, um, looking at Jesus' spirituality. The title has a deliberate kind of double way of looking at it, the spirituality that we find in Jesus and what it means for us to live out that same in our own lives, and we're looking uh, through John's Gospel. We're going to be majoring our, uh, in the latter chapters, around twelve to fifteen, later in the, in the term. But we started last week in John one, and this week we're in John chapter two. We'll come to that in a moment. But um, if I can make this wonderful thing work, I've called today's title "Concern for Dad's Honor," and I trust that that will become clear to us uh, as we look at the passage and, and sharing it together. Before we get there, just want to sort of set a bit of background to what we're going to be looking at today. Over the last couple of weeks of the holiday season, there's been lots of kind of reminiscing on 2012 and certain activities within that where events that we've looked at, certainly for me, I think it's been true for you as well, have conjured up a much greater sort of sense of meaning and emotion and involvement than just kind of the event itself. I mean... Going off a tangent, if you were to ask me about school at the moment, you wouldn't just get... It's a place where kids will have to go to get their education. you get a whole spiel of answer because of my involvement in the Tyndale School Project. Because school means a whole lot more to me in the moment just a place where kids get educated. Um, think about Sam and Rie Massey getting married yesterday. Wedding right now means a whole special amount more to them than just you know, this thing you go through to, to have to get married in order to live to kind of legally together in that way. And the Olympics... Let's go for the Olympics. You know, all that feel-good stuff that we experienced in the summer as people, one of those wonderful gold medals and all the things we saw and happened there. The Olympics means a whole lot more to me now as a result of this last year than probably it has done out of watching it in previous years past. Some words just create a sense of something so much more than, a more than thing to them. And the passage we're going to look at today starts off with such a term when Jesus talks about Passover. And Passover came to the Jews, and the context we're going to look at today, to mean several things. It reminded of something that had happened in the past. There'd been this act of judgment that God had brought to the the Egyptian people who'd held the Israelites captive. And that, you know, Sober act of God's judgment on that people that saw the firstborn being killed. It was an act of deliverance for a nation as the Israelites left Egypt and moved out of Egypt and into eventually the promised land. But it came to mean more than that in terms as well of pointing towards a future when there would be a future Messiah, a future Saviour who would return to be the saviour of God's people, and set with that a new order of things. There will be a new kingdom, a new whole way of doing things. And when the Jews celebrated Passover, they looked back to what had been, but there was also a looking forward. There was a whole more than, tied up in the word, than just God passing over the houses in Egypt where there was blood spread over the lintel. So with that kind of more than the back of our minds, let's look at John chapter 2. I'm, I'm going to start reading, in fact, from verse 13. I'm going to jump straight at verse 13. There's been, if you know, John 2, the story of the wedding in Cana in Galilee, um, and then we're told Jesus went down to Capernaum. And then John writes, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts... He found men selling cattle sheep and doves and other things sitting at table and others sitting at tables exchanging money so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area both sheep and cattle he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables to those who sold doves he said get these out of here how dare you turn my father's house into a market His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it again in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Not only does the passage we looked at start off with a term in Passover that has this sense of more than about it for me. But the passage itself contains within it a more than. You can watch The Lord of the Rings and just enjoy a great movie. You can read The Lord of the Rings and think it's a nice story. But books like The Lord of the Rings, The Narnia Chronicles, and maybe we even come to see Harry Potter if we do enough work on it like that. Stories that contain kind of allegory and a whole lot more that can be read into them. And the passage we look at this morning has this case of Jesus clearing the temple of a whole load of stuff that was going on. Is that it? I want to suggest to us as we look at the passage, it's that and a whole lot more. So stick with me as, as we unpack the thing together. Let's just go over the story quickly first. Jesus arrives at the temple and the season of Passover. Um, I've managed to find um, a picture of what that new temple looked like. Remember there was a temple that Solomon built and that got destroyed and after the exile they rebuilt the temple, Herod's temple, um, and the, right in the middle there, you have the kind of the inner temple, where within it was the inner holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant was kept. And around the outside, we have what there is referred to as the court of the Gentiles, the area which the passage talks about. Jesus came into the enclosure of the temple because the whole thing, you realise, is a whole controlled and walled area with gates around the edge that, that provide entrance to it. And Jesus comes into that area, and I don't. You know, he'd come up to to celebrate the Passover like every other good Jew was doing, uh, who would want to do at least once in their lives make pilgrimage to be, make the Passover part of their lives. He was coming up as was his custom to do that. He'd already done it as a youngster, um, and he was there again now. And he comes into the outer courts of the temple, and he sees all that's going on, and it would have been going on it would have been a kind of matter of routine to the Jews by this stage, guys. Exchanging money. Why were they doing that? Because you were now in a holy place and you could only use pure items. So the money that you used in everyday life, your Roman coinage, or if you travelled in from some other land, some other coinage, could not be used in the temple area. You had to change it into a kind of what we'll call a Jewish coin, a coin that only was allowed to be used within the temple area. Because as part of your worship, you were going to pay money over it towards the taxes that will keep the temple going. Because this wonderful, great building with all the people who worked in it needed maintaining and money needed to go to that. And it was their duty as Jews to pay that in their temple tax. And they needed the right sort of coins to do that. So there were money changers changing the money. And the money changers were allowed to take a kind of percentage of that whole deal. So that was all going on. And then, of course, they'd come as part of the Passover to make a sacrifice. Because the whole entry, as it were, into God's presence required sacrifice to be made on a daily basis. You go back into the early books of the Old Testament and you read all about the sacrificial laws that God set down that need to be followed through in various ways. But particularly if they were coming in Passover and wanted to celebrate, they first needed to get their sin stuff dealt with. Something had to be killed. And depending on how rich they were or how, maybe how serious their sin was, they'd trade anything between a cow and a dove or a pigeon. And that would have to be a beautiful, pure beast that could only again be bought in the temple area. You couldn't carry it into the temple with you. You know, my my special pet sheep that I brought with me to sacrifice today. No, you had to buy it in the temple area, pay money over to get it. So there's a whole lot going on in order that the system of worship that the Jewish people had built up as part of their whole way of celebrating Passover was going on. And Jesus looks at all this stuff and says, I'm not happy. So, goodness knows how this worked out, but we read that he takes a, makes a whip out of some cord that's lying around, gets a whole kind of vicious piece of rope together, and starts kind of just turning over tables and thrashing it at beasts and presumably thrashing it at people, and somehow drives out from that quarter area all this stuff out of the temple because he doesn't like it there now obviously that will have taken people by surprise but the story we then read just at that point people gather around him and start chatting to him and say "Well, oh, okay you've just done this amazing act you know, what right have you got to do that what's your authority for doing that show us a sign that proves that you've got the authority to act in this way And Jesus replies in this kind of riddle about buildings being destroyed and being rebuilt, which, with the timescales involved, must have again seemed fairly ridiculous. So, so what's going on here? That's the story. But what is actually happening within that story? Well, one of the things that we we need to perhaps. dispense with perhaps some of you may be asking a question right now is that, hang on a minute this story of cleansing the temple I've read that elsewhere in the bible I thought it happened in that last week when Jesus went up to Jerusalem well it did if you read the accounts of Matthew Mark and Luke John's recounting something at a different point in his story of the gospels just worth saying there could be two good reasons for that and you read the books and the commentators as you might expect aren't all agreed Um, So you've got a choice this morning. You can either decide that, yeah, it doesn't really matter to you, there were two different accounts, and this is the first time Jesus cleared the temple, and the Jews didn't take notice of it, and he came and did it again a couple of years later, or possibly there was one event that was interpreted differently by the different writers. For Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it was important that this story was told when it happened, when Jesus into Jerusalem, that final act, as it were, of kingship, the Messiah's arrived, and his arrival means he's coming to die on a cross, because that's the way the king was coming to establish his kingdom. Whereas for John, if we turn to John 20 and verse 31, we read the reason why John wrote his gospel. Let me read it to you. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's clear intent on writing his gospel was that people understood that this guy called Jesus had arrived, who was the new Messiah, who'd come to introduce a whole new order of things, uh, and that not only would you understand that, but actually you'd believe it, you'd take it on board for yourself, it would change your life, and it would be life to you too. And John wants to get that, Into people's thinking as they start to read his account of Jesus' life at the outset. The fact that Jesus had come as the Messiah, John wants to be in our thinking at the beginning. And trying to get a hold of this, um, we happened to catch up, I think it was Friday night, on watching a film we'd recorded over Christmas Um, the Leonardo DiCaprio film about the guy who cons everybody called Catch Me If You Can. Some of you may have seen it over Christmas, you may have seen it before, you may know the film. If you don't, it's not hugely important. But within that film starts off with DiCaprio in a, in a French prison. And and he's rescued from this French prison, taken back to the States. And then the film unfolds everything that's gone on prior to that event. And really, that's what John's doing here. He's giving us, because that... The whole event is DiCaprio's acting out this guy who was a con man. It's a true story. Amazing story. This, this incredibly bright bloke, as a teenager, cons the world out of millions, and spends his life um, doing all sorts of stuff. I'm getting distracted and irrelevant, sorry. And <laughs> Might even spoil the film if you went to watch it. And he ends up, as these things must be, eventually getting caught. And he ends up languishing in a French prison for a number of years. That's almost the end of the story that you've seen at the beginning of the film. Well, that's what John's doing here. He's giving us the kind of, the final crucial scene. Jesus is coming to be Messiah at the beginning of his account. Okay, long time to explain the point. So you've got two ways of looking at it. Two different events, some scholars believe, or it was one event retold in different ways to communicate a different purpose. Make your choice. The important thing is the truth that John's being communicated, is that Jesus has come to be Messiah. And we're going to unpack that, as I say, as we go through the story. Let's go back to this cleansing of the temple because I think there are three levels at which I want us to try to grab a hold of what um, John is saying to us here this morning. This coming into the temple courts and seeing what was going on wasn't just to witness a whole bunch of people engaging in a system of worship whereby animals were being sold and money was being changed hands. What was going on here was something... That, if you like, had become a complete corruption of what God had wanted. And it had become a complete social injustice. In today's terms, you had money changers probably making 100000 a year at the expense of the people whom they were changing money for. Goodness knows what the... Um, we can work that out because then we know what sort of rate of interest they were allowed to charge. And you scale it up for the number of times it would have happened and you come to sort of huge sums of salary. Very nice, thank you very much. just sitting at a desk all day giving swapping coins and making 100 grand. Um, or you had those guys buying and selling the animals. I'm sure they're making a tidy sum, too. And of course, the temple court has become filled with this, and an area which was within the wider domain of the temple, an area that was intended for worship and was intended to be accessible to all, had become f- full as a market. And it was a complete anathema to what God had really originally intended. It was an obstruction for people who wanted to worship, to be able to worship, because Gentiles, those who were not true Jews, were still allowed to be coming, as it were, into within the, the, the area where God dwelt, were being excluded by all the other activity that was going on, and there was complete social injustice going on in terms of the amount of money that was being made by a few at the expense of the many. Some years ago, some of us may be old enough to remember being at a summer camp, and a guy called Bob Mumford spoke up. those of you who know about Mark Mumford, he leads the sort and family in Oxford, it's no relation. This guy's an American kind of prophetic teacher. And Bob taught one summer about this character... I don't if you remember hearing, if you're, you're too, not quite as old and ancient as me now. But he talked about Frankenstein. And this temple system that Jesus was about to drive out of the courts was a Frankenstein. Something that had been created uh, in order, as it were, to, to serve. Here was this kind of robotic creature that was going to be a servant to the guys who designed it takes on a life... And Bob did this way better than I could. He haven't hoped to do it you this morning. Gets up off the table and starts walking about, <laughs> terrorising everybody and taking control. And Bob's point was that, tragically, if you look at the, within... The, well, certainly within society at large, but even within the church, we create Frankensteins. We set off doing something which we think... God wants and we're pretty clear God's told us to do but this thing takes on a life of its own and it takes over and it takes control and, cease and stops being the thing that was originally intended for and takes on a whole kind of more sinister almost dangerous character. I want to suggest to you that this system that Jesus walked in and seeing in the temple courts was a Frankenstein. It had taken over a whole kind of life of its own and the very intention to enable people to come and worship God had been lost. Whenever I see this, I have to ask myself, okay, pause. Have we created, Frank- have I created Frankensteins in my own life of things that I've made bigger than they really are and they've kind of, they're absorbing me in a way that God never intended? Have we together as a church got any Frankensteins that we've created? Things that we're are now ta- we're maintaining a kind of life and momentum of their own that are sucking out actually the real life of God that God wants for us. Um, sobering kind of pause to, to make at that point for us to think about. Anyway, Jesus sees this stuff and he's pretty incensed and he clears it out of the temple. But he's the reason for doing so was not because he was just angry. As we read about it, it's, guys, how dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? And the disciples themselves talk about zeal for his father's house would consume him. The thing that was actually Jesus' main motivation here was a righteous anger at what was going on. Righteous anger is a good thing. It's a powerful thing, but it's also a dangerous thing. I mean, Let me illustrate why I say that. Years back, some the old stories of my poor old man, you know, think things back in life and think back over things. I went to see a film called Cry Freedom. And this Cry Freedom was the story of, um, I don't think the name goes for me, Steve Bigo. No, Steve? Beko. Beko? Biko. Beko. Steve Beko. Um, who. And, and, and the guy called that's what Don English, the, the, the uh, journalist, in South Africa, apartheid system gets him, Biko's killed. The end of the film, um, there's a whole roll of credits that runs through of people who had lost their lives seemingly um, unjustly within the South African judicial system of the time. And one of the names that went through that list was a guy called Wellington Chaziban who I'd been at college with. And, there he's, and I knew he'd died, that he'd been killed. Supposedly, he'd jumped out of a tenth story window, um, voluntarily, while under arrest um, with the um, police. And seeing his name there, something went off of me. And I was, you know, I was just angry again at the injustice of the apartheid system. And I came out of the cinema, full of anger, and I thumped a lamppost which was a seemingly useless gesture. What did thumping a lamppost on a Friday evening achieve to change the fact there was this injustice going on in South Africa? Righteous anger is a very powerful thing, but unless we actually allow it to actually give vent into the right sort of action, I want to suggest there's something that can go off in there that can actually just, we miss it. I missed it that evening. I didn't put into any constructive action what I could have done in terms of playing my part to sort of help campaign against more actively that whole regime, which really intrudes what the film should have provoked me to do. I just allowed the anger which was initially, I do believe was a kind of righteous anger, got misplaced and displaced, which is why I say it's powerful but dangerous. It may not be your problem, but it certainly was, was something I had to grapple with. And as I thought about it, you know, Jesus actually allowed his righteous anger to change something that day by driving out the um, guys from the temple. He was angry on his father's behalf. He was angry because God's honor was being violated in the way in which a system that was supposed to bring honor to God was no longer doing so. If you like, it was bringing honor to men because they were making a tidy profit rather than God himself getting the glory. But let's go one behind that. Um, let's move on to think about the consequence of Jesus clearing the temple. See, because I've said to you at the beginning, I want to suggest that there's a whole lot more than going on with this passage. It wasn't just about clearing a whole lot stuff out of the way because it was wrong and these guys were behaving wrongly in terms of corrupting the thing. By driving them out of the temple courts... Jesus brought, for that point, an end to what people were there for. They could no longer worship in the way they expected to. Because they could no longer make any sacrifices. Because there were no animals they could sacrifice anymore. The whole pattern of worship that they were expected to take part in had now been removed from them by Jesus' act. And And in that very act, Jesus was communicating something more than just The goings on here are wrong, guys. It's all very unjust. I want to suggest to you that Jesus was actually saying this temple and all that it represents and a system of worship is a system that has actually come to an end. And I have the authority as the son of God to start a new system of worship. God was isolated behind a curtain in the Holy of Holies in the old system. Jesus has now been revealed as the Son of God. The old system required daily sacrifice for forgiveness of sin. Jesus came to make a once-for-all sacrifice on that cross for us. The temple had been the centre of worship. That kind of these in bold there in the sense that it was all about the temple and maintaining the temple system. Um, Jesus was now a focus of worship. He was the one who was being referred to when he says destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days because of course he was the one who was going to rise again in three days. And worship which could only have only happened there in the temple as we'll read on in John, as you, if you turn on to John 4, you discover is now possible anywhere. The physical temple was being replaced by a new temple and that was Jesus. There was more than just a social injustice thing being done away with here. There was a whole new order of worship being brought into being. And there's a whole more that we could unpack about that but I'm going to, um, I'm going to take just a minute to pause on that. In reading about that I came across this kind of this quote and read it to you. I just ask you to think a minute about if God could just challenges you through it. I'm not offering it to you as a statement of description of our own affairs, but I do find it challenging. For Jesus, worship is a matter of gravest importance, and as a messianic king, he claims lordship over it. A significant proportion of the Bible is devoted to the regulation of worship, i.e. all those stuff in the Old Testament, particularly. We are sadly misled if we imagine the quality of what we offer in worship services or the devotion with which we participate is of peripheral importance. Modern-day worship, which is irreverent, superficial, distraction-filled, lifeless, cold, sloppy, self-indulgent, hypocritical, ill-prepared, or theologically inappropriate, will likewise receive God's censure, as will worship which detracts from the honour and glory of the living God, through a concern for performance or self-display on the part of those leading it. Now, that is a kind of... That's one, almost like one guy's opinion, and I don't quite know what had motivated him to write that. But in his seeking to exegete the passage and, and present that before us, in this new order of worship that Jesus brought in, it just made me stop and think, yeah, I don't think a lot of that directly applies our trust to our own worship. But it does merit us just soberly saying to ourselves are we making sure that when we come together on a Sunday morning to worship together, when we spend time on our own individually in worship with the Lord, are we making sure that our worship really is honouring Jesus and is about him and not about us? And, you know, I still do it. There the number of times when we will evaluate worship on the basis of how it made us feel. Oh, I didn't really enjoy worship much this morning. You know, the songs were a bit naff and... You know, that guy playing the guitar couldn't play it. Um, It's not about how we feel, surely. It's about who we've come to worship and uplift as the one who is truly Lord and Lord of King and kings. And it's just, you know, worth reminding ourselves that Jesus here had come to do away with a whole ritual of worship because there was something far more life-giving he wanted to introduce. And if he's going to do that, then we need to make sure, I suggest, that we ourselves... Are living our worship out in the way that Jesus intended and not falling prey to coming back into some system of ritual um, that actually suits us but which God's not terribly interested in. And so finally, what's the third thing that's going on? Um, remember, I talked early on about it was the time of Passover, and that was significant in Jesus' timing for doing what he did. Passover was about judgment, deliverance, the return of a Messiah, and the new order of things. And in what Jesus did, in this act of clearing the temple, there was actually a prophetic declaration going on that I, the new Messiah, have arrived. You see, some guy turning up with a cord and having the the power, the authority, the charisma to clear the temple. Either he is a kind of Frankenstein lunatic who everybody's terrified of and runs away from, or there's a big authority going on here. And that's what the Jews kind of recognized when they asked, by what authority are you doing this? Why, why, you know, why do you have the right to clear the temple? Because if they're in the Passover season where they're believing that at Passover God would come and bring another Messiah, was this the one? What's the sign that you're the Messiah? Do something miraculous to prove to us you're the Messiah, is what's behind their question to which Jesus, having made the prophetic declaration, deliberately avoids putting words to it, which if we read the scripture, we realize he early on was not prepared to stand up publicly and say, I'm the new Messiah, here I am, come and worship me. He did it by how he lived and the actions that he made, not directly to the specific words that he said. And so he refused to be drawn into saying, I'm the Messiah, but the very act of what he is doing is introducing a whole new order of things where, yes, actually, the Messiah has come. There is a new order. There is a new kingdom that is now going to start. Uh, The kingdom of God is here. The one hoped for had come. So we have one level, just an act that deals with the social injustice. We have an act that introduces a whole system of worship and a new order of worship But more than that, we have an act which is prophetically saying, I, the Messiah, have come, and I have the authority to change things around here. The old order is finished. The old order of worship is gone. There's a new king come, and it is his kingdom that matters to us. And all the way through that, Jesus is concerned that it's his father who gets the glory for all that's going on. His father who is honored for all that's happened. He wants to make sure that people understand this new order is about the Father being honoured. The Father getting the glory. Jesus was passionate for God's glory. We have to ask ourselves, what is? we start 2013 and it's that kind of season of reflection. As John's been encouraging us through worship, Josh's been encouraging us through worship to do that. What, if you like, is, is an undergirding passion for us going to 2013? Is it our own self-preservation and our own uh, realising self-goals and so forth and so on? Or is it for God's honour and for God's glory? Are we as passionate for God's glory as Jesus was? Let me just remind you what we've looked at to give you three ways in which maybe that can take some reality for us this year. Are we ourselves motivated to confront even an injustice where we see it? Uh, To in some way do our part to challenge stuff around because we understand that by doing so we are seeking God's honour and God's glory. See when people are abused and dishonoured God's creation is abused and dishonoured and dad doesn't get the glory for what his kids are doing. When, when kids live well, I don't know if you have this reaction, but when, when you see kids behaving well, something in you acknowledges that their parents are probably doing something to help those kids. And when you see kids behaving badly, there's this bit of sort of stigma we can sometimes wrongly attach to the parents. It's a kind of bit of a natural human reaction to do that. But there's something of that dynamic that, that, that Jesus is working here and understanding here, that when God's kids are dishonoured to the way they're abused wrongly in society, God's own glory is at stake. God's honour is at stake because his kids are, you know, behaving, as it were, badly, being treated badly. And so when we tackle a social injustice issue, we actually have the potential not just to do it because it offends us or we want to change or campaign something, but because God's honour is at stake and we can do something to increase God's honour. Our concern for worship that it's actually God-honouring and God-glorifying and not me-centred and about my own feel-good factor. Um, A concern for God's honour and glory will make us more sensitive and more alert as worshippers. And if we understand that we're concerned for God's honour and God's glory, then we're going to be concerned for his kingdom. And God's kingdom is about where God's rule exists. And God's rule exists where people love him, serve him and follow him. And... There are people around us at the moment who don't. A world full of people who are living in ways that, if you like, dishonour their dad because they're not living in a way that their dad would want them to because their Heavenly father's made them to honour him and serve him and follow him and they're not doing that. So if we're concerned for God's honour and God's glory, I want to suggest to us that actually that helps motivate us and encourage us in our evangelism. It's not about something we ought to be doing. It's something we're going to want to do because we want to see God honoured and glorified as his kingdom grows, as more people embrace God's glory and honour in their own lives. Um, lives, if you like, that were polluted become cleaned up. And as a result, God's glory is increased. So that, you know, in what we see Jesus modelling here in John 2, I want to suggest to us there are just some practical areas where we can ourselves embrace and grow in this coming year as we look practically to see God's honour increase in our lives. John Snelson last week talked to us about this being a year in which things were going to make sense. That whatever had kind of gone on last year, that kind of felt uncomfortable and whatever, we were going to see this year kind of come into clarity and things made sense. Stuart's talked to us this morning about God completing things God's completion being there and us entering into that completion and living in the reality of it. I kind of sense they're kind of tied into this because if we're actually living in a way that actually we're more and more concerned for God's honour and God's glory than we are about ourselves, we're moving into the completion that God intends for us and we're seeing things come into order in the way that God's wanting to reorder them in our lives. So I kind of sense that there's something here that God is bringing together for us to focus on so practically I want to finish by just um, asking you to go away and try and do something. Steve last week asked us to go away and think about asking that question. You know, are we grace or are we truth people? My question this week isn't quite as simple as that. But it's to say, what can you go away and do this week that you recognise is specifically about God's honour and glory and not yours? What can you do this week? It's about God's honour and glory and not yours. It might be one of those three areas I've touched on. But it could be in a conversation with somebody, you make sure that you don't talk about what you've done for God, you talk about what God's done for you. It might be that in, in uh, this area of social injustice, you, you, you set to like maybe you decide to write... the. You're the MP or somebody about an issue. And in it, find a way of actually pointing out that actually it doesn't offend you, but it offends the creator whose honour is at stake as well. There may just be ways of practically doing that. I'm suggesting that we seek to grow in being people who are honouring God and seeking his glory in practical ways. So what could you practically go away and do this week that would specifically you recognise put God's honour and glory the top of the list and then when you've done that how about trying to share that experience within your missional community if you're meeting this week uh, with a friend just to encourage one another and get into our hearts that actually it's honoring God that is the thing we most want in our lives it's his glory that we most want to see increase that's what drove Jesus to do those three things as he cleared out the temple I want to suggest it's a benchmark for us as we go into 2013 that God wants to grow in our own lives that we live increasingly not just in kind of words because we know it's the right answer but in reality in our own lives. Amen. I think we're going to band's going to to sing. Yes Steve? Do you want to take over?